All right, let's um, pray together and let's look at this passage which speaks about that gospel and about the confidence we can have to hold it out to others. Let's pray. Our loving Father, you have uh, blessed us with all good things, uh, but especially to us, a runaway world who are wicked and unable to earn your favour and blessing, you've given us the gift of life from the dead, of forgiveness of sins, of justification in Christ, all received by faith, not by our works, not by our uh, background or memberships, but by, by trusting in your promise and your goodness. We praise you and thank you so much for that. And we pray that we may appreciate those things afresh this morning, that I can make them clear from your word, um, that those who need to hear them for the first time will have their eyes opened and really get it, really get what it means for you to be the God that saves us by faith alone. Um, and we do pray for ourselves, for this church here, for the Uni Fellowship of Christians, for other churches here in Hobart and beyond, uh, that you may open doors for us to share this gospel, this great news of salvation to others, to family, friends, workmates, acquaintances, strangers, that you'll put in our paths people who are curious and open, that you'll help us speak clearly and truly, and that you'll bless those words and those efforts and these prayers um, with that wonderful uh, success of seeing uh, new lives, new souls saved, new people born again, new brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I understand you're looking at the moment at a range of themes that sum up the Bible that kind of capture up um, how to make sense of this huge collection of books. The Bible is one book, but it's a bunch of books. What are the threads that hold it all together? that can kind of then help you as you read a new part of it, as you flip open to at random Psalm 108 or Micah chapter 2 or whatever it is, um, to, to see how that makes sense as a part of a larger picture. And so you've been looking at that in various ways, thinking about sacrifice, for example, and so on. Um, this morning we're looking at faith as one of these themes that goes across the Bible that helps you make sense of it, like a, an interpretive key, that as you turn that key it opens up the Bible to you in a new way um, and, uh, and hopefully I can contribute in that way this morning and you, you, you get a fresh perspective on that stuff. Or if you don't really quite know what you think about Christianity yet and you're, you're interested and, and, and curious then hopefully this becomes another bit of the puzzle for you that you start to, as you put faith down and see that a little clearer then slowly it looks less like a few puzzle pieces on a table and more like an image becoming clear to you. Now hopefully we can get that a little bit for you this morning too. I've chosen Romans 4 because it speaks at such length about faith but also because it wants to make the point that this idea of salvation by faith is one that goes right back into the Old Testament. It's not just something that Jesus talks about or the Apostles talk about but actually he quotes, did you notice that? Abraham he speaks about from right in the beginning of the Bible. King David he speaks about right in the middle of the Bible and says that's then what the New Testament announces in its fullness. So it seems like a pretty good place to go, doesn't it? Um, it particularly pops up after chapter 3, where in Romans chapter 3, um, what Jesus did is explained in one of these great highlight passages of the whole Bible. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26, tells us about a righteousness by faith, apart from law made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
Again, the Old Testament talks about it. And now it has come in Jesus. And it's a righteousness by faith for all who trust in Jesus. All are sinful, but all can be made right, justified by grace in Jesus Christ, who was a sacrifice of atonement, who was a redemption by his blood, so that we are now justified, even though not just, not right, not okay with God. We are made okay with God, atoned with God by Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's in chapter 3, and it's announced in chapter 3 that the Old Testament points to it. The law and the prophets testify, he says there in verse 21 of chapter 3. And at the end of chapter 3, he, he has a bunch of questions, objections. You know, what about this? What about that? What about the, you know, they're, they're objections like you might expect to have if you um, invited a friend to church or to some event or Bible study. You know, you, you explain to them um, what you believe and they say, oh, but what about, didn't I read somewhere that? Haven't people said? And one of those objections at the very end is, what about the Old Testament law and the Old Testament part of the Bible? At the very end there in verse 31, do we nullify the law by this faith? talking about the Old Testament law, Moses and Abraham and the prophets and all that, the Old Testament um, scriptures and the law and, and all that. Does this, do they get written off now? I've certainly had friends say that to me. I, perhaps you have too. Uh, but I've had friends say, I thought the whole Christian thing was that the Old Testament was this angry God and then Jesus came and said, don't worry about that. God's nicer than you thought. You've heard things like that before, haven't you? I know I have. It's a pretty common misconception. Um, but that's, that's where we pick up then in chapter 4. It picks up answering that objection to say, well, hang on, is this new Jesus bit, this faith bit, um, is this new? And does it get rid of everything before? Is it contradictory to the Old Testament? So that's kind of the context in which we pick up. In chapter 4, verse 1, and a uh, first heading as we look at this passage is two Old Testament examples, Abraham and David. That's the first section. He says, no, this isn't new. Haven't you heard the story of Abraham? Let's go right back there. Imagine we've got the Sunday school timeline that you know Sunday schools will do those murals. Let's go right back, not to the serpent and the, the forbidden tree, but a little bit on Abraham. And then let's go a little bit further on to David. Two, two parts of the Old Testament story. Let's think about those and how those show us um, that uh, this stuff isn't new. This gospel of Jesus stuff isn't new. First then, Abraham, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, discovered in this matter? What about Abraham? That's the Jewish interest. The Jews were interested in Abraham as their forefather, like it says, that the origin of their religion, uh, their beliefs, their practices, their identity. He's like their, what they call a paradigm. You look at Abraham as the framework from which you look at faith and life and even ethnic and national identity. Who am I? A Jew will say, I'm a descendant of Abraham, my forefather. So it's pretty good to appeal to Abraham, in other words. Good place to start. He was the one who received a religious sign for all male Jews, the sign of circumcision, the uh, newborn's uh, foreskin removed as a, as a ceremonial sign. He was the one who received that in Genesis 17. He was one who was even said to be obedient to God, to obey all my decrees and commands, Genesis 26 puts it. So verse 2 says, well, let's think then about Abraham. If, verse 2, it is true that Abraham was justified by works, so right with God because of the things he did, the good things he did, 
If that's true, verse 2 says, then he did have something to boast about, but not before God. He had some claim, some confidence. As the book of Romans had said earlier in chapter 2, verse 7, if those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, God will give them eternal life. So if he did that, persisted in doing good, sought glory, honour and immortality, then yeah, there's something to boast about in a way. 2 verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. So if he observed the law, if he did obey God, then yes, his, his circumcision has this value then as, as reinforcing his, uh, his goodness before God. 4 verse 4, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but an obligation. Those of you who have employees, if your employee puts in a day's work, a week's work, a month's work, and then you give them their pay, you don't expect them to say, oh my goodness, thanks so much. Wow. <laughs> How could I? Oh, goodness me. I paid, no. <laughs> I mean, they'll say a courteous thank you. But it's like, well, I should hope so. <laughs> I should hope you'd pay me. I did the job, so where's my pay? <laughs> um, so if, if a person is consistent in, in meeting God's requirements and, and satisfying God's expectations in perfection, then, then the, the natural flow on of that is a right relationship with God and all the blessings that come from it, well and good. Yeah. So if that's what Abraham experienced, then well and good. If he was good because he lived the right life and so was right with God, enjoyed the blessing of God, then that's what we can learn from Abraham. He could boast, verse 2 says. But I mean, not before God, of course. All gifts come from God. But, but what did Abraham discover in this matter? Verse 1 asks, what did Abraham discover in this matter? Is it different in the Old Testament? Different to this message about Jesus? Well, look at verse 3. What does the scripture say? Look at the Bible. Quoting from the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Don't look at some tradition. Don't look at your opinion, my opinion. Don't just Google and find out what someone on the internet somewhere says. What does the Bible say? And he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, where God says, I promise you blessing. I am your great reward. I will bring my good plans for you about. And Abraham's response, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, it's difficult working out how to um, bring a translation from ancient languages, Hebrew, Greek. I mean, even a modern language, uh, Greek or French or, or Vietnamese or something, it would be difficult to translate how you choose to put words from one language into another. One of the difficulties for us is that the word believe and the word faith, they're two separate words. We have this um, noun, faith, that's the theme of the sermon, but then we have this verb, to believe. But actually, they represent the same idea. And you have the same word capturing both uh, in the Bible languages. But we kind of, it's tricky to bring, bring it into English. I suppose you could say um, justified by belief and the person who believes. But belief sounds slightly different, doesn't it? It, it doesn't quite sound right. You, I suppose you could say um, Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you could go that way. But I, it's helpful to, to see that faith and belief... They're the same idea in what we're looking at this morning. And funnily, um, righteousness and justified are a similar thing. A just 
and righteous, uh, justified and made righteous. That, that's the same, the same as faith and belief, justify and righteous. They, they sort of sit in the same, in the same circle, <laughs> each of these two ideas. So, um, so Abraham had faith and he was justified. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Same collection of ideas. Now, it's not saying, it's an interesting verse, isn't it? Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. The words on their own you may, might make you think Abraham believed God and believing is so valuable that when God saw that believing pop up, he said, that's what I'm into. I really love believing. I'm going to count the believing as righteousness because it's so good. That's not, that's not really what the idea is getting at. It is rather to say, uh, when Abraham believed God, because Abraham believed God's promise, God credited the believing of the promise as righteousness. Um, it's a gift from God in response to Abraham's trusting the promise of God. That's, that's the idea behind the phrase. So that's what Abraham discovered. How was he right with God? How did he receive the blessing of God? He heard the promise of God. He trusted the promise of God, believed it, had faith in it, and God declared him right. God gave him all the blessings from righteousness to all else that he promised Abraham because he believed. That's what Abraham discovered. And so back to our analogy about working, the man who works, his wages are credited to him as a gift, not as a gift, but as an obligation. He earns them, but that's not Abraham. Rather, the man who, verse 5, does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. I'm not good enough for God to grant me uh, by my earning his favour. I'm, I'm like the wicked. But God gives me his gifts, including himself and a right standing with him, by just pr trusting his good promises. Trusting in a, not like um, uh, merely going, oh, that sounds true, I'll believe it. But faith has that, an idea of a warm trusting, a receiving. Thank you. And in that moment, made righteous by God's grace. That's what Abraham discovered, the Apostle Paul says in his book of Romans. Want to think about the Old Testament? That's what the Old Testament tells you. God gives good promises, undeserved to sinful people, and when sinful people hear God's promise and believe in God's promise, warmly receiving it, God says, you are right with me. You are justified with me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 3 verse 23, had said, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. It's not by what we do, but what God has done. It's not by what Abraham did, but God would do in Jesus, giving his son the righteous for us, the unrighteous, that we might have life. Same thing with David, verse 6 says. Same thing with David. Let's move along our Sunday school timeline. We thought about Abraham. Now let's think about King David. The great king who received God's promises, God's kingdom, God's, uh, uh, God's capital, Jerusalem, whose son Solomon would build God's temple on Zion in the centre of his people. A high point, high point in the Old Testament. David, what did he discover? Verse 6. David says the same thing. 
when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God will credit righteousness apart from works. Quoting from a psalm, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The worker who doesn't turn up at work and has no good reason for absenteeism and is still paid according to their wage. Their absenteeism, their failure to do their job covered, forgiven and still blessed. He doesn't credit to us what I deserve. Doesn't weigh up our works, which in our case are bad works, our failures, our sins, our wrongdoing, our failure to meet our obligation to God, to one another, to our world. Instead, blessedness given as a gift. Forgiveness, covering, blessedness. David did not sing about how blessed are those who do all that God requires and so enjoy the blessing that is rightly theirs. But he sings instead about those who fail to do what's required of them. The wicked who are justified because they trust God. Expanding then on this stuff in verses um, 9, 10, 11 and 12, um, and this is our second heading, um, we get this contrast then between law and faith, between works and the righteousness by faith. So not by law but by faith is our second heading. He goes back to the story of Abraham and he says, what came first? The ritual of circumcision, a, a, a formal thing we do, or believing the promise of God. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Is it perhaps that only those who are Jews, only those descendants of Abraham, who can then be blessed by God? Well, think about the timeline. We zero in, in a way no Sunday school would ever do, into a really detailed part of the timeline, comparing Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Maybe we're now in colouring in sheets for a unit, a term unit on Abraham or something. Um, and what comes first, the giving of this ritual sign of circumcision or the passage already quoted, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? Two chapters apart. Genesis 15, Abraham believes God and is righteous. Two chapters later, Genesis 17, the gift of circumcision is given. When Abraham is declared right with God by faith, he wasn't even circumcised. He was, you could say, not even a Jew yet in the way Jews would later see themselves. He wasn't yet a circumcised Jew. If you really understand circumcision, uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 11, you will understand that it's about righteousness by faith, verse 11. He received circumcision, a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. <laughs> if you really understand the sign, you will understand it's about righteousness by faith. That's the danger of rituals, isn't it? Even Christian rituals like the Lord's Supper, you can misunderstand it and think that's where the, the power is, that the ceremony is where the great power of the Christian faith is. That's not it at all. You understand the Lord's Supper? You understand justification by faith, not justification by eating the bread and drinking the juice or wine. <laughs> you understand circumcision properly, you understand. It's, it's about justification by faith. It's not, oh, the Jews are the blessed ones. 
In fact, he does something quite interesting in verse 11 and 12. He says, in the first place, actually, Abraham is not the Jewish forefather, verse 1, who may give blessing to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, but actually, he says, in the first place, verse 11, the second sentence in verse 11 there, so then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. He was circumcised, uh, so he was justified before he was circumcised, when he was still a Gentile. He was still not yet a Jew in that sense. He was made right with God. So who is he the forefather of? Anybody, including those who are not Jewish, circumcised from the descendants of the tribe of Israel. He's the father of those who are justified by faith. And secondarily, verse 12, in the second place, verse 12, he is the father of the circumcised, but he gets even more sneaky. Look what he says in verse 12. Yeah, okay, he is the father of the circumcised, who not only is circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So sure, he's the father of the Jewish people as well, only insofar as they imitate Gentile Abraham. <laughs> He's deconstructed the normal way of thinking about um, Jewish religious identity and said fundamental to it is not uh, lineage, national belonging, ritual compliance, um, legal obedience, but is trusting God the way Abraham, the nobody, the non-Jew, the, uh, the uncircumcised trusted God. He says it's not by law in verses 13 to 15. Um, it is not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promises he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The promise here is talked about as being heir of the world. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Not heirs of the promised land, but heir of the world. Reminds us of the Beatitudes, the meek inheriting the earth. I think what he's doing here is again doing a timeline thing like you're doing in this series at Hope at the moment and saying what began with the promised land was never meant to just be the promised land but it was ultimately to find its fulfilment in a new creation. I think that's what he's sort of hinting at there. The full implications of the promise to Abraham was a new creation, blessing to the whole world. But he says... That promise was a promise. It wasn't by works. In fact, if those who live by law are heirs, verse 14, faith has no value. The promise is worthless because law brings wrath. If law keeping is involved, we won't be able to keep the law. So what, what use? If the promise has to bind itself with law, then we'll fail to keep the law bit. And so the promise bit sinks with it. It's a useless offer. Law brings wrath, he says in verse 15, because we can't keep it, that means. It's a theme, he says again, chapter 5, chapter 7. When you can't keep something, even if it's good, it becomes a trouble for you. If you can't live up to something, even if it's good, it then actually hurts you. And so here the good law of God, because we can't keep it, only brings the judgment of God upon us. No, it's not by obeying. It's not even by a combo of obeying and believing. But it's by trusting, by believing, by faith, verse 16. And so is for everybody. Look at verse 16. 
Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Remember what he said, though, about who is the offspring of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, verse 16, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. It comes by God's grace, God's generosity. And it's received, as all gifts are, proper gifts, just by receiving, by faith. No room here for a combination of works and grace like you find in the, the formal theology of the Roman Catholic Church or uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not a combination of works and faith. No. It comes by God's grace. It's received by human faith alone. And it's because it is by faith alone, by grace of God alone, it is for all who come to it. None of us are blocked from it. There's no standard we fail to satisfy. He's the God who justifies the wicked. It's the all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's he freely, by his grace, to all who trust. And there you have the missionary drive of the Christian faith, right there. It's for everyone. This amazing treasure is for everyone. It's not like uh, money, where if I give you money, then I've lost the money. Or Easter eggs, if I give you my Easter eggs, I don't have Easter eggs anymore. No, no, the gospel is like an a earworm of a song stuck in your head that you sing out loud and now everyone else has got it in their head too. Let's not talk about Bruno, all right? <laughs> it's about, um, it, it's like information, that as I spread information, then I don't lose the information. More of us have gotten smarter. Like a beautiful, catchy song, like uh, great new information revealed. The gospel spreads out to anyone, and so what a great drive to motivate Christians to preach the gospel. It's amazing. And it's mine. And it can be yours. It can be anyone's. That's where mission meets worship, really. As I worship God for what he's done to me, how could I not want to tell others what he's done for me? The free offer of the gospel, spreading it however I can. And lastly, in the final section of this passage, he, he speaks about how this relates to hope. In the final section, still mainly focusing on Abraham, we now think about Abraham and hope. God is spoken about as the God who gives life to the dead. There in verse um, 17, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That's who Abraham trusted in. Um, and, and that example applies to Abraham's own experience he was as good as dead, the passage speaks about. And his wife was unable to have children. It's like her womb was dead, is the description used there. They were so elderly and unable to have children. It's like they were when it comes to having children. And when it comes to a future life, it was like they're as if dead, as if nothing. And yet out of nothing, like God made the world, let there be light, let there be, out of nothing. So God, the creator God, the life-giving God, out of things that seem almost dead, as though they are not, he's, he calls them as though they were and says, let there be Isaac. 
And there was. Let this elderly, childless couple be the father and mother of a great nation of many nations. And it was. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, we're told. Verse 19, he faced this, the reality. His body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. So that, again, is a good idea of what faith is. It's not just a, oh, oh it makes sense, I guess. I guess I kind of believe it. Um, you know, sometimes I've used the illustration to say, faith is a little like a chair in the sense that if I trust a chair, um, I won't act it out. You know what it's like to sit on a chair. You're all doing it very well at the moment. Um, you're trusting the chair, but it's not your trust that holds you up, is it? It's not the, by the power of your trust that you're levitated a foot off the ground. No, it's the, it's the strength of the chair that does the work. If you sat on a faulty chair, then no matter how much you trusted it, well, actually, the more you trusted it, possibly the harder you'd fall, wouldn't you? Um, so that's a helpful illustration. But of course, we don't trust God as if he's just an object, just a chair to sit in. He's a person. He's God, and he's our Father. And so our trust of him is not merely, oh, I guess I'll sit on Jesus then. But it's this grateful, thankful, joyful trust. It's a not weakening in my faith, but being fully persuaded that God who has promised will do what he's promised. He can do it. I won't waver. I will trust the good God, the mighty God. He can do it. Fully persuaded, verse 21, that he had power to do what was promised. And that's why it was said it was credited to him as righteousness. He was trusting the one who was able to give him life, Righteousness, everything else. His faith in the life-giving God who gives blessing, who calls out of nothing, new life. And then that's all applied to us as Christians today. It said, oh, well, look, this, this whole story, it's not just about Abraham, but it actually speaks to your experience right here. Verse 23, the words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone. Spooky, huh? They weren't just written about Abraham, history lesson. No. Get this, verse 24, they were written for us, to whom God credits righteousness, apart from works. For us who believe in him, who not gave life to Sarah's womb so she could have Isaac as a child, not giving life to Abraham in his old age, but even greater... God called out of nothing Jesus, dead in the grave, under, died under the wrath of God. He brought Jesus up from the grave, raised him to new life, never to die again. He was delivered over to death for our sins, verse 25, raised to life for our justification. In that promise and act of salvation, we trust. And as we trust in it, as we believe in it, we are justified, made right in God's sight, not by what we do, but by God's grace, not by our works, but by merely joyful, passive, dependent faith. Eager, empty hands hold, held out to be filled by God's great goodness. So that then is how faith runs across the scriptures. It's great, isn't it? 
It's a huge relief um, to, to people in our guilt and our flaws and our weakness. Huge relief. Awesome. And as we've already said, a, a massive incentive to want to talk to others, to pray that God will bring us to people who are open, to dare to ask if people are interested, because it's such a wonderful thing to be able to share. You know, one of the things that has been hardest, in addition to all the stuff I said at the beginning of uh, the, today about the struggles during COVID, one of the other things that I think has been hardest for us as the Christian church in, in, in the West over the last few years has been the string of scandals. I mean, Hillsong's great uh, tragic revelations has been the latest of those. It is exhausting and depressing, isn't it? It fills you with grief and disheartenment, yet another story of yet another sin and failure. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I'm sure that those of us who are Christians here, you come back to the truths we've talked about this morning, don't you? As you hear yet another revelation about yet another so apparently great one with their failures, you go, well, gosh, that's depressing. And things weren't as good as I thought they were. And I really liked that preacher, that person. And, and gosh, they've disappointed me. All those feelings. But then you come back, well, I come back to go, but God is still good. His gospel's still true. Heck, his gospel is even true for those mighty who fail us and fail God so terribly. It's still true for them. <laughs> and and I, on the one hand, I then say, well, that's all I got. I'll keep trusting Jesus and serving him. And then I stop and laugh at myself and go, well, if that's all I've got, I'm in a pretty good place, aren't I? <laughs> all I've got is God and all his goodness and all his grace. That's pretty good. Let's pray. Our loving Father, you're the Father of love and, and though we've, we fail you, we do wrong, consciously, deliberately, inexcusably, though we, we stumble and fall in our frailty and, and foolishness, yet you pick us up, you cover our sins, you accept us as we are and you lead us patiently, kindly, firmly in your ways by your grace, make us right in your sight. By your grace, lead us not into temptation, but into righteousness and holiness. By your grace, hold on to us. Hold out your hope to us that we will keep trusting you and following you. And in the middle of the sins of your people and your church, in the middle of the hard hearts of those who don't know you, Open doors for the gospel to be spread. Open the doors in people's hearts to receive your grace, we beg. In Jesus' name, by the Spirit we pray. Amen.